I invite you to be turning to Acts chapter 7, verse 54, which is where we'll pick up today. Bearing witness are words that I have used, I think, flippantly in my Christian walk. Uh, Growing up, probably in any evangelical church, you're often told to go and bear witness, to be about... um, witnessing about Christ, and it's something that brings to mind really that is should be easy, but I never do it. It's so easy because all that comes to my mind are gospel conversations, right? We're just supposed to go up to someone and look for that end. Do you know Jesus? Do you go to church? Or what do you think about the Bible or whatever have you? And it sounds so easy, but I'm afraid of rejection. <laughs> I'm afraid of being... Uh, thought about uh, or considered in a negative light or afraid of a tough question that they might ask me. What's that's really small potatoes. <laughs> Just need to put some pants on, Kevin. Those words, bear and witness, speak of something a bit more serious than a bad conversation with a non-believer. First of all, just look at that word bear. How do we usually use it? I can't bear it any longer. <laughs> or that illness I had was just un bearable. And that's exactly the bearing that witnesses do because witness in the Bible comes from the Greek word martis from where we get the word martyr. So whenever you hear out of the lips of Jesus in Matthew 10:18 as he predicts for his disciples and you will be dragged before governors and kings before my sake to bear witness before them. You get the idea that Jesus isn't talking about Slightly unpleasant conversations. He's talking about witnessing to the point of persecution, if not death. He's talking about the likes of Stephen as we finish his story today. And we've been trekking really through the longest sermon in Acts, and we come to his end to find that he's been charged like Jesus. He's defended his charges, but now he will meet his end like Jesus, persecuted and murdered by what are the religious higher-ups of his day. So read with me. Don't worry, these words will come back up uh, later. But read with me and stand with me if you're able to from Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54 through 8.8. Now when they, that is the Sanhedrin that Stephen is speaking to, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. 
But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, four unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And let's pray. Father, we do come to a timely passage as we read about Stephen, we read about Saul, and but also remind us of the hope found in the message we hear from Philip. So Father, I pray that wherever we are at in our Christian journey and our walk, that Father, your formula is from persecution to joy. Help us to hear your voice today. Get me out of the way. Say what it is that you desire. I pray that you would make much of your son Jesus so that we might be in more awe of him and be more loving and willing to serve him naturally and powered by your spirit. We pray for this in the person and work and the saving grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think I've told you of the story before that a person new to Jesus, new to the Bible, he approaches his pastor and he says, Pastor, I've been reading this Bible and I just don't know. I don't think it's working. Something's not right. Well, what's wrong? asked the pastor. The more I read it, the guiltier I feel. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> it's working, says the pastor. Just keep reading it. This is a universal experience, this is. Uh, some people chalk it up to mean pastors, or maybe different preaching styles. It could be. There are pastors and preachers out there that don't ever seem to touch on anything that requires repentance or confession, because believe it or not, I personally don't like making people feel bad, so I understand that. So, But you keep coming back, so hopefully you realize I don't craft my messages to step on your toes. If it hurts, just don't shoot the messenger. Peter, at Pentecost, gave a long sermon. And he pulled no punches. In fact, he kind of finishes this way. Not kind of, he does. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, that's kind of heavy. (laughs) You crucified The Messiah, that's quite an accusation. That's not supposed to pass over the ears like you stole my cheeseburger. (laughs) Rather, God's anointed Savior of mankind came to earth and you are guilty of murdering Him. No No wonder what we read next. It says, now when they heard this, and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we find by the end of that episode, that's exactly what they do. The church goes up to about 3,000 souls that day. We move to Acts 5. Peter and the disciples are imprisoned. And during that time, While Peter and the disciples are on trial, Peter tells a different crowd, which happens to be the same crowd in front of Stephen, the same thing. And he says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, 
whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Another striking accusation. And down in Acts 5.33, we read, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to kill them. Stephen just got done preaching again to the same crowd. In the end, on very accusatory words, he called them covenant breakers. He says they're uncircumcised. He called them stiff-necked, the idea of an ox stiffening its neck so as not to receive any yoke. And he called them resistors of the Holy Spirit. And this is all true because by this time, the same group of people have listened to the lips of Jesus, have listened to the lips of Peter at least two to three times, and have just heard Stephen, I believe, lay it all out in crayon for them. And we read, verse 54, Now when they heard these things, they were, and the actual word there is cut to the heart. But the ESV gives us the kind of cutting to the heart, the emotions that were provoked in them. They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. So this really gets to them, what Stephen is saying. This group murdered Jesus. They rebuked and threatened the apostles in Acts 4.21 after Peter raised the cripple at the temple. They then flogged the apostles in Acts 5, verse 40, when they were all imprisoned and what Peter said first cut them to the heart. And here it is about to rise to stoning Stephen to death, followed by all-out persecution to follow. Threatening God's people, flogging God's people, murdering God's people, persecuting God's people. This really gets to God. (laughs) This really gets Him. We can take some visual cues here in the next verse. It says, but He, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing right uh, at the right hand of God. First, we we need to see some contrast here. It's interesting. The hearers are filled with rage. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. When they grind their teeth with anger and venom at Stephen, Stephen peacefully beholds the glory of God in heaven. But then we're given this very interesting expression that Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I want to go through four verses with you really quickly in your New Testaments. Jesus says to this, some of this same group, as he's on trial before he dies, he says in Luke 22:69, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated, I guess over here, at the right hand of God, right hand of the power of God. Paul says to the Romans, reminding them of their forgiven state before God in Christ Jesus. And he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul, as he speaks to the Colossians about living in the identity of Christ, says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then the author of Hebrews tells us to put our focus on Jesus. And in doing so, we grow in holiness and sanctification. And so we need to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Of those four verses, 
We saw three times that Jesus was seated at the right hand. One of them just said he's at the right hand of God. What's interesting is that the only place in the entire Bible Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, some would say this, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Him being at the right hand means he's equal to God. And then whenever he has finished the atoning work of saving God's people, that's why he's seated. He's done. What this signifies is that Jesus stands to receive Stephen. Jesus stands to vindicate Stephen. The council, the Sanhedrin condemns Stephen, but the Lord of heaven commends him. When God's people are persecuted, Jesus stands for them. Stephen just gave a history that when God's people are afflicted, God delivers them. When God's people are suffering, He delivers them. And when God's people are condemned to death, Jesus, God Almighty, Lord and Savior, stands for them. He receives them. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. Then they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. How do you react when you're cut to the heart? Back when I was in youth ministry, there was one gal in particular who seemed to be on board with Jesus. Talked a lot about the Bible, could quote verses, just the sweetest gal. Some guy came along who didn't know Jesus, and it seemed overnight the gal was smitten with him, and I remember having a hard conversation with her. From what I can tell, you're making bad decisions. He doesn't love Jesus. You're okay with being alone with him. And immediately, it's like this gal didn't know how to spell Bible. She said, well, Joe, what Joe says over here makes more sense. I don't know if I was ever a genuine Christian anyways. Don't you judge me. You don't know me. It was like overnight. And it it spoke, yes, maybe of a shallow faith, but it also reveals how some of us can handle conviction. We can get tense, defensive, and offensive. We can just speak out loudly and try to justify our actions, and hopefully, maybe not physically like this angry mob here with Stephen, but we can close our ears and in our hearts and minds murder the voices of conviction in our lives. Because we know better. (laughs) The Sanhedrin, the council here, may be acting what they think to be on biblical authority. Luke 24, 14-16 says... Bring out the camp of the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. And the Sanhedrin are so wrapped up in their temple worship and the law that Stephen sounds like blasphemy to them. And so they follow Leviticus to a T. Interestingly enough, what we were reading in Sunday school was another situation where somebody was brought before Jesus and said, hey, the law says to stone this adulteress. What does Jesus say? He was without sin, cast the first stone. (laughs) There was nobody left to do the law to her. We also remember that Israel and its Jurisdiction is subject to Rome at this time. People wonder, is is this a mob attack? 
somewhat maybe sanctioned by the Sanhedrin. Is this the Sanhedrin acting illegally because Rome would not allow its subjects to to um, execute anybody? Could be that Rome is turning a blind eye. Jesus was a big deal, had a lot of followers, but if there's bound to be some fanatics of Jesus who need to die in his wake, Rome says whatever. <laughs> who knows? Maybe that's the case. We don't know. We do know, it seems like, either A, Rome doesn't care, or Luke does not report any repercussions of what Rome did to those who stoned Stephen to death here. We talked a little bit about Saul, but we're gonna, he's going to be brought up here again in a bit. So first, let's read the dying words of Stephen. He says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, first, Stephen revealed that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which is putting Jesus in equality with God, because everyone's supposed to bow before the sovereign, but here is Jesus standing around the throne of God. But now do you hear this? Stephen is praying to Jesus. Stephen doesn't say, Father, receive my spirit. He says the name of Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who, the keeper, if you will, of who enters the presence of God or not. The apostle Peter would say to Cornelius' household later on in the book of Acts. He says, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, a lot of people don't like the idea or the term judge. Usually it's because we live in a really unjust world. (laughs) Timely day-to-day, some of you know how it feels like to go before our judges and courts (laughs) to have unjust decisions where the wicked seem to get off scot-free and maybe those in the right are just left wanting. Meanwhile, many times innocent lives have to pay the cost. Stephen is innocent. Stephen is entirely right and true. And though Stephen be no one of importance to the, in the Jewish religious establishment, he is giving the truest, purest record of God's redemptive history. But he's dying because of it. The judges of the world are judging him wrongly, and injustice is taking place. Yet for Stephen to recognize the world's true judge, the judge of the living and the dead, is to recognize the best judge to have. Because Stephen also reveals he truly knows his judge. He knows his judge's heart. In the following line, after petitioning Jesus to receive his spirit, because in Stephen's dying breath, he prays like Jesus did at the cross. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is the heart of our judge. How many of you could do that? Because Jesus came to earth to reveal that he is not only judge, but he is also advocate. See, the evangelist John writes in 1 John 2, 1, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is always willing and able to forgive sinners of their sin. He judges the world, but not without providing a way of forgiveness. He is the judge behind the bench who has the audacity to get up from the bench after declaring us guilty, he says, for those who will receive it, I'll pay the price. I'll bear the punishment of your guilt. You'll be forgiven through me, those who would accept it. 
And so Stephen banks on Jesus' forgiveness. He banks on His mercy. And he hopes that even in his dying breath, he might testify to his persecutors if anyone is hearing that even they one day can approach the God of Stephen, Jesus Christ, and find forgiveness for their actions. And one will indeed find forgiveness there. Right now, his name is Saul. We read in verses 1-3 through of chapter 8, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles... Uh, some wonder if the apostles stayed behind to take care of the church that was in Jerusalem. We don't know the reasons why. Some also wonder if it was just the Greek or the Hellenists who left the area while the Jewish people stayed in Jerusalem. Those are all just speculation. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You know, there are some Christians out there that are skeptical, dismissive, cautious, sometimes downright neglectful of Paul and his books of the Bible. Some people think Paul departs from the message of Jesus and the apostles, that some say Jesus and the apostles still included the law to be followed, and Paul, well, he just ignores the law and he errs on grace, he errs on Christian liberty. Something that Paul was not present to witness entirely when Jesus walked the earth. And since here he is introduced as a murderer and persecutor of Christians, that he should be questioned as to his legitimacy when he becomes an apostle. And i got to be honest, that's definitely not me. <laughs> I love Paul. I, love, I could spend entire years studying his books. I love the story. I love the man. And I find great hope and consolation and gratitude in his works. I love how he elaborates grace. I've already quoted Paul a few times today from his books, and if you were here the last two weeks, I think Paul must have been listening to Stephen because I was able to use a lot of verses from Romans to elaborate Stephen's words. And so unashamedly, I'm glad he's in the Bible, and I'm glad that God, the Holy Spirit, and the councils of old, including Peter and Second Peter, saw fit to include Paul's writings among the Scriptures. Kids memorize the words of Paul as they grow up in church with the Romans road. Verses from that book that depict the gospel so well. Maybe most of you are there with me. Maybe most of you love Paul. And if that's the case, maybe you're there with me too. That, that sometimes knowing the rest of the scriptures can then minimize or overshadow or make small who Paul was before as Saul of Tarsus. Saul, the ravager, Saul, the church hater. Make no mistake, the language here depicts Saul as the number one persecutor to be feared among Christians. In our day, a few years ago, this is ISIS. A while ago, a series depicting the Bible aired on the History Channel. And when any company, for any reason, puts out anything claiming to be inspired by the Bible, some Christians are more critical than entertained. <laughs> I get that. Sometimes I think it's for reasons less than serious, right? Hey, Jesus didn't wear a gray and beige toga. It was white. <laughs> things like that. Well, in my advice to you, if that's you, look to be entertained. Don't look to criticize. I just want to show you a quick scene from one of my favorite episodes. It was the last episode in the series, and it shows us an angry Saul of Tarsus. 
And it gives us a picture to maybe what kind of man he was. The way that, excuse me, the way that Luke writes, showing us that garments were laid at Saul's feet, that Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and then that finally Saul was ravaging the church, going so far as to entering house after house, he dragged, and that word there implies a violent removal like we just saw, he violently dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It shows us that Saul was not content to just debate in synagogues or public places. He went to private homes. And furthermore, usually women don't suffer persecution, but Saul seemed to show no mercy. In fact, the word ravaging here in the ESV, the Greek word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament that Luke likely read. And in Psalm 80, verse 13, that spoke of a boar ravaging the vineyard of Israel, tearing it up. Saul likely led the persecution and was the most militant of persecutors of the church. Saul just wanted this Jesus thing to die, to be gone. I imagine an arrogant, snarky man who said, Rome just didn't get the whole job done when they executed Jesus. Sometimes you just got to do it all yourself. Saul had a reputation to be feared in his day. Acts chapter 9 would tell us that when Jesus showed up to Ananias to go to Saul and basically receive him as a brother, that Ananias says, I've heard about this guy Saul. Are you sure you're talking about the right guy, Jesus? This was days, be- this was days before CNN and Fox News and Facebook and newspapers, but word of mouth traveled all around the ancient lands that Saul was to be feared. He was leading the persecution. With Saul making things bad in and around Jerusalem, we read in uh, verse 4 of chapter 8, it says, Now those who were scattered and went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. First of all, verse 4, some say should, says that maybe guilt should be laid upon the church. Back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the commission was given to the church to be bringing the message of Jesus to Jerusalem and to Samaria. And here we are in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, turning that uh, corner to Samaria and eventually to the world, which eventually, spoiler alert, Saul, who we just met, will be instrumental in carrying the gospel to the world. And so what some say is, well, it just took the persecution of Saul to move these disciples out of Jerusalem, almost as if God is to blame for persecuting his own people. God permitted foreign nations to capture Israel in the Old Testament. Okay, I guess there's a possibility, but I I like what one of my commentaries speculates on, and that is we see in the first chapters of Acts that the church is growing exponentially. 3,000 souls, 5,000 souls, and so forth. So can we blame the 12 apostles and eventually uh, the six deacons for being slow to move the mission outward? Whenever we have thousands of souls to care for, to teach, to preach, to minister to, to disciple, and so forth. It could be that the church was moving at a slow pace, understandably so, with the amount of believers they are receiving. 
Meanwhile, morally responsible evil people began to bring persecution on the church. And so God, through the church, redeems the scattering of his people to continue to carry out the Great Commission. And I think it's really important that we don't blame God on persecuting his own people (laughs) when he stands to receive Stephen from persecution and he eventually knocks down Saul in blindness saying, why do you persecute me? (laughs) It sounds to me that God isn't to blame for persecution. He's just to blame for redeeming the evil that's being done to his body. Do you hear that? Verse 5 would be a mind bomb to some contemporary Jews in that day. Philip went down from Jerusalem. Now, Samaria is geographically north, but everywhere from Jerusalem in the Jewish mindset is down as an elevation and also in spiritual sense. But Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Some Some people think that that means the capital of Samaria, which has been rebuilt and renamed Sebasti by Herod the Great. Others think that the article here is not the, but it's actually an a, the a, a city in Samaria. It could be any number of cities. But the bigger point is that this is Samaria. And as was just read to us in John chapter 4, Jews do not usually interact with Samaritans. But Jesus sets the stage in the gospel accounts by interacting with them. And so now the church, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus and commanded by God, follows suit. And like Stephen had received power to do signs and wonders, we read at the beginning of Acts 6, so Philip had his ministry authenticated by the Holy Spirit and he proclaimed Christ. And we'll read in verse 12 that they all believed Philip or they believed Philip and would be baptized. Let's not miss here the ministry that the Holy Spirit did. It says, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And I love what one of my commentators says. He says, Beneath the surface lay a sordid mix of demonism, brokenness, oppression, and sickness, the very picture of hopelessness and despair. The power of the gospel, however, delivered them from all these physical and spiritual maladies. And for a short time, the Lord demonstrated his eternal plan for humanity's cure, referencing Revelation 21.4. Ultimately, the gospel of Christ brings healing to both soul and body. The impact of the gospel resulted in a city with a changed disposition from despair to joy. The sins of the fathers had separated them from the covenant promises of Israel. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed by Philip was reuniting them. The profound truth of becoming a new creature in Christ brings cultural as well as personal redemption. History shows that where the gospel of Jesus and biblical truth are honored, cultures enjoy the benefits of Christian enlightenment. Here's what I want you to see, though. What made Philip go to Samaria? Persecution of Jesus' followers. I think about what the persecutor himself would write to the Roman Saul, who becomes Paul, writes in Romans 8, and I know you know it, verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul has been on both ends of that, as I'm sure many of us have too. Paul, in large part, as Saul, is to blame for the believers scattering from Jerusalem. 
And as Saul is going from house to house, destroying families and throwing believers in prison and haunting and ravaging the church, his ripple effect lands Philip in an unexpected village in Samaria, where as the church is being terrorized, it is at the same time still growing, still bringing about kingdom life and culture, still throwing out demons and healing illnesses. God is a God who can make joy from persecution. Don't you like that? Isn't it amazing the trajectory of these 15 verses? We went from a funeral and a horrific murder of Stephen to the reality that the fate of Stephen is in danger and of being shared due to the likes of a guy named Saul who is scattering the church under fearful persecution to a little anecdote here. Oh, and still sinners were finding their sins forgiven, evil spirits cast out, illnesses healed, and so forth. Like something just does not add up in that mathematical equation. How did we go from, I started with contaminated water, I added poison, I added a little bit of anthrax and some gunpowder, and I came out on the other end with pure water. (laughs) Only God does that. Amen? So where does that leave you? Where does that leave the church? I can tell you what. I'm a little scared sometimes when I watch the news. People who promote biblical marriage getting publicly shamed. People who uphold the value and sanctity of life facing more and more legislation that takes life. Suggestions of laws and legislation that maybe one day sermons like I preach might be illegal or brought into legal question. Then we think about the church worldwide. Christianity already outlawed. Lives taken for simply professing the name of Jesus. Families still taken from their houses and separated. There are Saul's still at large and there are Stephen's happening every day. I have to believe that Jesus is still standing at the right hand of God. I have to believe that the ripple effects of this persecution, that God is still able and in fact is still bringing joy from persecution. And I have to believe this too. I open with the idea of what actually bearing witness is, and I confess that I'm not the best here. I can preach behind a pulpit and that is good, but I want to empower both my personal fear and your fear if you have any in bearing witness. What's the worst that can happen from you and me sharing the gospel with a family member a friend, or a neighbor? What's the absolute worst? Because even if it did happen, I wonder if we might become Stephen, and I wonder if in God's providence, redemption, and grace, that there might be a Philip out in the ripple effects. Do you hear that? Even if that relationship is severed, even if that conversation goes from awkward to painful, the seed of the gospel is planted, and God bears fruit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, sometimes what we see is because you have given us the truth in your scriptures. And I, as a sinner, can't help but grow cynical or pessimistic sometimes and see things getting bad, going to worse, going to worse, going to worse. But remind me, Once again, Father, that you have given me joy in the Holy Spirit and that you've given me joy to know that you are the greatest redeemer ever. That even while families are being split apart and Christians are being persecuted for your namesake, your church is still growing. There are people still being added to your kingdom. That you're able to take any evil, any evil, There's nothing more evil than the murder of God when he became flesh. And you were able to take that and save the world. 
And you're able to take the persecution and the suffering of your believers to continue to save souls and grow your kingdom. Father, would you empower us that we would realize we're not being dragged before courts yet. We're not being dragged before rulers, but we're still scared sometimes of talking to an individual about Jesus Christ. Would you empower us to know that even if the worst happens, you can still bring good. All we need to do is be faithful. Father, would you help us? Help us in our day-to-day lives. Help us to be mindful of where you would have us to do your work with our neighbors, friends, and family. We love you and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.